Welcome to episode 57 of the Cake Watch podcast. My name is Chris Kendall. I am an EU official. I work for the European Union, yet an actual EU civil servant, a real-life Eurocrat. But that doesn't matter because it's not why I'm here. I'm here in a very, very personal capacity. Absolutely nothing at all to do with my job at all. I just thought I'd mention it. And with me is Peter Walding. Hello, um, Chris. Peter, you're back. We had um, we had a podcast with you. When, when did we do it? It's about three months ago, wasn't it? Three months ago. And it was one of the most... Um, we got some of the most positive feedback for any podcast that we've done, actually, okay. after that podcast. It was... Um, people enjoyed our chat. So I thought, well, let, let's get you back and let's... Um, Let's talk about all the things that have happened since we last podcasted, which is quite a lot because we have not um, recorded for, I think, three or four weeks now. It's been um, quite quite a long hiatus. Um, and as the observant listener will notice, Steve Bullock is not back. Um, it's still just me. Steve is still on his long creative furlough. He's been working hard on all sorts of interesting projects. Uh, we'll let him talk about them when he comes back. And he's coming back. So the first thing to do is a bit of follow-up. Um, this should hopefully go out this week, which is the week of the 22nd of July. We're recording on the 23rd of July, a day that will go down in history for day all sorts of, of terrible reasons, which we'll get into. Yeah. Um, I'm planning to record one more podcast over the summer to go out in August at some point. Um, and then we're, uh, we're all on summer holiday until September. And then the good news is that Steve um, intends to be back. We intend to get back into the groove for September and October in the run-up to uh, what promises to be quite an eventful autumn in the world of Brexit. So that's what's happening with the podcast. So um, we know we've not been very regular recently, so sorry for that, but we hope that you are still subscribed and that you get this podcast and that you're listening to it and obviously you are if you're hearing this so um peter hello uh tell us again who you are for those who might not have listened to our last podcast together um well hello everybody it's a privilege to be back here chris you know one once bit not twice shy which is amazing we had a good discussion last time mm. um my name's peter wilding um i have a claim to infamy which Chris always reminds everybody who's listening of, that Brexit was my fault. So the word is um, millstone around my neck, but it sort of enables me to have a chat about it. Um, I was the chairman of British Influence, which was the campaign before um, Mandelson and Cameron decided that the best way of winning the referendum was by um, trying to put the frighteners on everybody. Uh, so that was an experience. Um, and uh, since then, I have bounced from Brexit Britain back to um, Brussels. Um, I am by profession a solicitor, but I have <laughs> always got my, well, you know, into political scrapes because I was David Cameron's media director for a while. And um, those were the days. Stood for Parliament a few times and basically been a political uh, geek and um, long-suffering 
um, sort of player in the Conservative Party all my life, so, which is why this day, Chris, is amazing. This is the day the Jacobins take over. Well, I was going to say, the you, lunatics take over the silence. Your, your, so your special power is to lose elections. Do you know what? Ever since, ever since I first started standing for the Tory Party in the nineties, when I thought it was a good idea. You know, if you want to get into politics, into Parliament, you've got to do a few no hoper council seats. And of course, this was during the days in the nineties when Major was going down the toilet. So I've always lost. Yeah. It's great. It's great. <laughs> well, I know what it's like always to be on the losing side of an election. So, yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah. So, so, so for those who um, didn't quite follow the reference, so you are able to be, you, are, you, you claim to be the person who coined the portmanteau word Brexit. Well, it was um, forgotten by me when I wrote an article back in 2012. And it all came from the fact that after nearly seven years working in Brussels, I was completely confounded by the fact that, you know, the Brits were hugely influential in this hmm. town. And, you know, the single market and the unification of the continent were effectively all British-inspired initiatives. And I thought, hang on, the Brits are everywhere. You know, why doesn't anybody know about this? And that was the first thing. The penny dropped, actually. Something's seriously hmm. wrong here. Hmm. Um, you know, the political establishment are not selling the fact that they're actually winning the Premiership League. They'd rather tell everybody we're actually close to relegation and, uh, in fact, the Premiership League is a waste of time and let's go and play on our own in the um, school garden. Mm. And it just incensed me. Mm. So what happened is I came back and was working for Sky Television at the time and we, you know, gave it all up, set up British influence, got a big bung from Lord Sainsbury. And the idea was Britain should be leading, not leaving Europe. And the whole motif was to get everybody talking about the word leadership. Mm. And you know, by 2015, uh, every leader had said Britain should lead in Europe. Um, and that's what we did. And, you know, we were quite happy about this because approval for the EU went from 36% when we started to about 57%. All to do with us. Uh, and then, of course, politics such as it is, um, I forgot that the Remain campaign was essentially New Labour's way of reclaiming their authority in the Labour Party. And, <clears throat> and they had a certain way of deciding which way they wanted to run the campaign. So uh, Will Straw took over. Mm. Good job, Will. Yeah, and uh, well, I mean, you know, to be honest, that sort of rabbit hole I don't particularly want to go down today because there's lots to be said about oh, yeah. what's happened to people's vote and um, and where where they're taking the whole campaign. Which let's not get into that here. Uh, <laughs> we can't get we... depressed too early, can no, we? Exactly. No, we're going to be upbeat. We're going to be positive. It's going to be rule Britannia. This is going to be a red, white, and blue cake watch, Chris. <laughs> Speaking of red, white, and blue uh, cake watch. Um, um, you you talked a bit about the fact that you're uh, you've you've been a Tory for pretty much all of your life, and that you've run several times for Parliament uh, yeah. in Westminster yeah. as a Tory. But you didn't run as a as a Tory in the most recent election, did you? I had a you know I totally had enough basically, and then um, I think we talked about this last time. Yeah, any 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 sort of liberal conservative. I remember being in the room where, funny enough, on this day of days when David Cameron uh, launched his leadership election back in the Royal United Services Institute in Whitehall in 2005. And, you know, it was exciting because after 
Haig and Duncan Smith and Howard and the sort of, you know, the three horsemen of the Tory apocalypse. Here we had somebody who was really quite genuinely going to seek to change the whole ethos of what it was to be a Liberal Tory. And, you know, I'd also gone down fighting a few years beforehand mm. when the last great white hope, Michael Portillo, mm. um, crashed and burned in two th- 2001. Mm. You know, and in another great litany of my, you know, heroic failures, I was deputy chairman of that campaign. <laughs> um, so that was great. Um, and then all of a sudden, I said to my mate as a minister, I said, you know, you're going to go down history. You know, the last 10 years is going to go down two words, conservative government austerity and Brexit. Mm. Well done. Mm. And it's just horrible, even at you know, my late stage of life, to see you know, dreams collapsing all the time in, in, in mm. political life. It always happens. And uh, so I got totally pissed off with it and uh, decided to go over the top with the Change UK thing. <laughs> Noises off stage. <laughs> Was that the cat? That's the cat. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, I mean... I was going to say that the Tories have done a pretty good job of of, of trying to shove the whole austerity thing off on the on the Lib Dems, but um, uh, yeah, yeah. well, but but no, you 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 left, and I I said something today actually. I I um I commented that of all the various groups that are angry and energised, there are probably none so angry and energised as. The centrist Tories, as the as the, the 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 reasonable Tories, because they're then not only have they got all the other shit that we're all dealing with, yeah, they're also dealing with the theft of their party. Yes, um, angry, energized, and clueless. <laughs> it's <laughs> it, it's extraordinary. Well, you see, you are Tories. You see. <laughs> I think <coughs> I think we were hinting yesterday, uh, last time we'd spoken. I think it, you know, this just doesn't get. It's just not part of the whole Brexit discourse, which is we are in a revolution, mm. and you've got to look at it that way. Mm. Mm. And uh, we're just sort of you know we're just most of these Tories have been in the same party. I mean, I joined in seventy nine, and this doesn't happen in Middle England, you know. Mm. You don't have revolutions in Middle England. And actually what happens is they, they actually don't know what's hitting them, yeah. like a big fat herring in their faces. And if you get into the sort of... Flat, plastic wrap kipper on it. The plastic wrap kipper, that's right. And everything has changed. And I think only when you see that this has been a fantastic conspiracy in mm. order to seize power only by a specific group of people who took the opportunity of the Brexit referendum to create a new model economy and a new model party only when you look at it in those contexts is this really interesting otherwise you just bang your head against the brick wall mm. there's nothing we can do about it um, and I just realised the Tory party having knocked on doors and being in constituency association and being selected you know the gammons you know the gammons have been weaponized mm. and it's there's a word that we did there's a word that we there's a phrase that we wouldn't have known how yeah. what what that meant three or four ooh, ooh, it's ooh, pizza ooh. pizza time uh, right pause for pizza 
pizza pool. Because this is more important than podcasts. So. Yeah, so uh, weaponized gammon. Now, there, there is a phrase that you would not have... If, if you'd heard that phrase in the wild five years ago, you'd have th- thought, port missiles? What, what are you talking about? Yeah, I know. But we know exactly what you mean. Well, my mum and dad voted uh, for Brexit. They're sitting down there. They're Remainer now. Mm. Mainly because they're ashamed of themselves. Because they bought all the golf club twaddle about, you know, let's That's take awesome. our country back and all mm. the rest of it. And, uh, you know, they, you just talk to them and, oh, we, did, we didn't realise that. Yeah. yeah. So, but, um, so, yeah, so your um, long history of losing as a Tory now needs to be updated because your CV uh, now includes losing as a Change UK That's right. It was like being engaged, married and divorced over a period of three weeks, the whole Change UK (laughs) romance. Um, I've never seen anything like it. I mean, just a couple of interesting points which your your listeners might like. I mean, what is it like for, you know, what the hell goes on with something like that? And I remember going to the... um, Candidates has um, selection and in, in roles Anna Subri and lots of hand wringing Labour MPs like Anne Turley and it was it was all great. There was a sense of there was a revivalist sense. We're doing things where people. There was a former leader of the Tory MEPs in the European Parliament, Edward Macmillan Scott. There was Brendan Donnelly, who was a former MEP too, Labour MEP, former Labour MPs, and it was all wow. Brendan wow. was Tory, wasn't he? Hmm? Brendan was a Tory. No? He was, yes, mm-hmm. and. Um, and what strikes you as you're sent out into the field in your, um, in your putties and, you know, your, your little bit of chocolate and your woodbines mm. is that after that, nothing happened. Yeah. And it was striking that everybody was promised, each region was promised £10,000 to spend, which is nothing anyway. Mm. And eventually that was changed to £1,000. Mm. And of course, you can imagine the demoralisation mm. of the people. You know, just can't do anything. In, but whilst all that was going on, you had to fill in all the forms. Or could you sort of, you know, report whether you spent thirty-six p mm. on taking a bus to Shrewsbury? We have to, we have to declare mm. it. And so, at the one hand, there was this inspirational start. Then there was no money, and then there was bureaucracy. Mm. Um, I shall never forget one incident because they, they did we did quite a lot of hustings. Mm. It was a Birmingham University, my alma mater, sitting there, president of the union, and all the party people. And here we were in an election that should never have happened, Mm. uh, in the middle of a crisis. And the questions coming for the floor is, what would the candidates do for uh, gender equality when they get into parliament? And the whole surreal nature of the party, the election... And the engagement of the public in it mm. was saddening, because actually nobody really knew what it was for. Mm. They were all excited because of the media of Nigel Farage's party, and I was inspired straight off by uh, Change UK. There was a speech by Gavin Esler at the yeah, launch. Wow, exciting, yeah. that's exactly what we did. But then I suddenly realised we're living through you know turbocharged political history now. Mm. Things come, things go. Now there are two Change UKs. Sugar Amama's in the Liberals. And I don't know how these people look at each other, mm. having been so, you know, having been, you know, the future once. Mm. And all of a sudden they're somewhere else, but then the story's moved on. Yeah. 
But the Brecken and Radnor by-election will, will, I think, be very, very big. Yeah. Um, Johnson comes in. He spreads his um, he spreads his happiness everywhere. His optimism, his can-do spirit, uh, the fantasy of the new narrative, and Brecken comes over. Mm. Tories lose. Lib Dems win. And the question really is now: This is this is the acme of political leadership now. Who can change the weather? Mm. And everything's up for grabs right now. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, 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 there's a long way of saying the, the story of Change UK ended up up its own fundament. Um, meanwhile, the Lib, because because the Change UK was stuffed the moment the Lib Dems did exceptionally well in the council elections. Yeah. Um, and the moment that was the, there was a complete mess up in the Peterborough by-election. And so it's a firework that didn't go off. It is, but there's still a big keg of gunpowder there waiting for the right fuse to come and uh, explode it. Is it, is that Joe Swinson? It's it's the agility of leadership, political leadership now, to take the opportunity. I mean, the ideal thing for the Joe Swinsons of this world is to create, let's call it, a Remain alliance and mm. to make that stick. And to achieve that, as in all political life, your enemies must fall into your trap. They must define themselves so wonderfully against your value system, mm. which actually the Remain center the alliance if luck goes our way, um, could very well be in, in that position. Um, but, and I know you didn't want to talk about the people's vote, but you know, the current people's vote dilemma mm. is do we want to be a people's vote for a referendum or a people's vote for Remain? Mm. And Mandelson and, and Alistair Campbell say, no, 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 just for the referendum. And others say, no, 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 it must be for me. I mean, frankly, I think there's a great deal of opportunity now for a body who says, hang on a second, let's just go for a revoke. Yeah. (laughs) Come on. Here, fucking here. Um, There's six million people who signed a petition somewhere lurking in in big data. And, I mean, in my experience, and perhaps you're... Listeners, if they're not sort of dozing off at the moment, you know, I, what I do now is I'm sitting in Brussels right now with, with, with Chris and I go over to Brexit Britain to speak to people. I mean, I'm a lawyer, so I'm speaking to businesses. And I tell you, I had an epiphany the other day. So I, I'm in the West Midlands, sort of farming central. And of course, the farmers want a no deal Brexit, according to the Knight Frank survey. And only 4% of farmers have prepared for anything. Mm. In spite of the fact, you know, they're the turkey crossing the road is going to be shot first mm. in the no-deal Brexit. But no. And I asked myself, I stood up in front of 100 farmers in Bridge North, and I said, why? Mm. <laughs> why do you feel like that? And this is the epiphany. So I'm sitting around after my speech, and I'm, there's an 84-year-old farmer who's seen it all. His son who's technically very clever, and his grandson, Mm. who says to me, I want to rear um, venison, Mm -hmm. but I don't want any subsidies for it. (laughs) Okay. And the point is, three quick things. 
most people from people listening to this uh, podcast get their news sources from empirical uh, influencers and you know newspapers or whatever hmm. and I suddenly realized that these people didn't hmm. they sit around the Sunday lunch table the patriarch speaks and says well look in the 50s and 60s and 70s you know we have houses before the European community and I had a tractor every year I didn't have any you know, miserable inspectors coming around and mm. sniffing around my barns. It was great then, mm. and we can do it again. Uh, I met a chap, amazingly. It was like um, it was like Boris Johnson on Speed. He was about seventy-five with a with a with a blonde wig on him. Mm. And he says, Are "You sure it wasn't um, Michael Fabricant? It could be Michael Fabricant. That's the kind of area we were in." And actually, he says, "We have the best beef and the best heifers." And when the when we went into the common market, this cheap French beef came in, and we were undercut, and it was worse than ours. And now we can ban it, and now we can effectively substitute it economic. And I thought, what am I going to say? How can I say them? I mean, that wasn't the worst of it. Mm. So the first thing is they get their news sources from their community, their family. Two, they, you know, I'm driving around the beautiful Shropshire countryside. Why would I care about British influence in Brussels if all of my life is spent in this beautiful countryside? Mm. And thirdly, it was all about money. This was the real big thing. You know, it was, it was you know, Oscar Wilde, the cynic knows the price of everything and the value of nothing. The value of Europe was as nothing to them. Mm. The price was everything. Was everything. Yeah. And I said, are you prepared to you know, sort of witness the dismemberment of your own country? And they said, yeah, we give all this money to Scotland. Mm. And so I concluded from this that there is a real, you know, the nervous breakdown of England is a kind of we've had enough. Mm. We want to shuffle off the mortal coil of sort of global responsibility. Mm. Why should we care about anything that goes on beyond either my region or... Yeah, my country, and it was very much embedded in that. Have Have you read the Fintonotes all book? Only last week. Yeah, my God, it's good, isn't it? Good on the on on the psychiatrist craft. Absolutely on the heroic on the failure. You know, if we're not going to be dominated by Nazis, then <clears throat> we'd rather be a colony than, than yeah. a conqueror. Yeah, it was very interesting that, and it really hit the nail on the head. It really did, and it really spoke to me. That's for sure. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> well. I mean, we, um, which are you a member of a political party now? No, no. I think, I think, well, I am actually a member of the Lib Dems, but um, <laughs> that's a classic answer, by the way. Yeah. No, no. Oh, actually, I am. Well, actually, I'm sorry. I forgot. <laughs> and that's because everybody's pun- politically, we're all punch drunk right now. What's going to happen yeah. next? <laughs> you know, somebody told me the other day that Tom Watson's presiding over his 140, 150 Labour MPs, and you know, the, you know, a, a chap sort of said with a, a knowing wink. Of course, their number one priority isn't to stop Brexit; it is to stop Corbyn becoming mm. prime minister. Mm. And so now you just sort of think, well, wow. So the change. This is what excites me about the next hundred days. Um, it it really does have the powder gag possibility of exploding. Mm. And we haven't even talked about the unknown unknowns that will tripwire mm. anything that Boris mm. Johnson does. Not just the backstop or does he have a majority or vote of no confidence. 
you know, the mistakes that are going to be made oh, in yeah, the next no, 100 no. days. If we think that we've seen the worst of Boris Johnson, <laughs> yes. I mean, the worst is to come, I suspect. Mm. No, it's a, very, it's a very sobering day. I mean, I feel, I, I, I think in terms of... It wasn't a kick in the teeth because we knew it was coming. But in terms of feeling depressed and worried and generally very anxious about the future, I think this, this, this day was almost up there with, uh, with, with the day after the referendum. It just feels very, very ugly. It, 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 the, the thought that this man, who is such an, a, a clear, an, a, an, he's openly a liar. He's openly, he's somebody who is on record as having conspired to beat up a journalist. Uh, he is an avowed racist. All of these things, to think that this person, who is so manifestly unsuitable and unqualified for the office that he's going to get, we assume, it, it, it's a very sobering and depressing moment in my political life as a, as, as a British person who's been around for uh, the best part of half a century. Yeah, absolutely. But it could also not be. Just, you know, I can give you some optimism here because there are two bits of optimism. Firstly, this is the moment where, as I said, I mean, the Jap- Jacobins have taken, the people, the Brexiters now own their shit. And so what will be fascinating about it is how... Johnson's Conservative Party splits into the People's Front of Judea and the Popular Front of Judea. I mean, because it's very difficult to see how this experiment can solidly move from day to day to week to week. I mean, I know we said that about May and all that sort of stuff, but these guys now own it. Hmm. And I think that's very interesting, number one. Secondly, Businesses I speak to just don't get it politically. They think there's going to be you know, a rational solution to mm. this particular issue. Whereas politics, as Marx said, is first tragedy and then farce. Mm. And we're on no, Napoleon III moment here, in a way, mm. because Boris Johnson, the, you know, the clown prince, mm. is now emperor. Mm. And... So, from what I hear, there is no specific plan. There's a great deal of bluster, which, in political narrative terms, has its merits. You know, things can only get better. Um, and the beauty of this next hundred days is to see whether there's any political talent left at all mm. to manage this short but incredibly toxic process the Germans have a word for it don't they this chess word Zezung or something like that where, where where every move is a dimension oh um a Zugzwang that's it that's it I knew you'd know yeah yeah, yeah where um yeah so Zugzwang is the, is, the, uh, is the situation in chess where you have a number of options open to you but every option puts you in a worse situation than you were before basically yeah. every, everything leads to checkmate but check, how do you get out of the checkmate so everybody's gloomy. Everybody thinks it's terrible. Oh my god! So what is the what are, what are the exit mechanisms now that we can just think outside the box? For sure, they'll be thinking outside the box. Now, the way I see it is the best move for Boris is that he himself is defeated 
um, on a vote of no confidence, mm. uh, whereupon he can zip into the Linton Crosby-inspired Rural Britannia general election, where it's me, you know, I am determined to deliver for the British people. I'm up against a traitorous parliament and traitorous Tories, and it's either me or the Marxist anti-Semite mm. magic grandpa. And I think if you, from today's point of view, you can see a get-out-of-jail-free card in the general election concept. That I Hang on, are you trying to cheer me up here? Because that doesn't cheer me up. <laughs> well, if you look at it from today, it doesn't. But many a slip twixt the cup and the lip. You think you might lose that? Because you, you know. You ought to, obviously. You ought but... to, but there's two months to go before that general election date could take place. Yeah. And, oh my God. So he's a no-deal Tory leader who's done a deal with Nigel Farage. The battle lines are beautifully drawn. And that's where we came out. The only question is, is can the remaining, the remainder side do anything smart? <laughs> well, you don't look impressed by that. He's got a very he's, no. I mean, he's, I, I, he's huffing and he's puffing. I buy, I buy the, uh, I buy the argument that we are that Tugtang pushes us in the direction of a general election. There was a really good piece by Ian Dunn today, by the way. I don't I know saw if you saw that, that yeah. but I thought that was really that summarised it. It was a very short piece, but it was beautiful. It was like, well, there are four things that can happen, and each of them are things that Boris Johnson has said he won't allow to happen. Yeah. But they have one of them has to happen. Yeah. So he has to give way on one thing. So he gives way on a referendum, he gives way on an election, he gives way on the, uh, uh, the backstop, or he gives way on um, the Theresa May deal. Mm-hmm. I mean, one of those things has to happen. So if, if we take it, the, the most likely thing that he'll give way on is the election, um, can he lose the election? Well, so a referendum, but what about the, the, the Kyle Wilson gambit, as your listeners uh, will know? We, you know, we couldn't particularly have a situation where he comes back with lipstick on the pig of a May deal mm-hmm. and the Labour Party pop up and say, OK, 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 we'll vote for it, subject to a referendum. Mm-hmm. And that's another defeat that he can then um, blind the ERG. That is, you know, it's not my fault, Gab. Mm-hmm. That's where we mm-hmm. are. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. That, that will be... Yeah. OK. So... In terms of the four outcomes, where we are sat here on the 23rd of July, uh, ditching the backstop, it's unlikely that he's going to do that because no. of all sorts of things. Okay, um, May's deal, we, he could come back with that. He could. We could see. Yeah, he could be the. This is what the minister may have lipstick on the pig. Yeah. saying. Yeah. Said, Ooh, I think. I think. I think he'll come back. I couldn't believe it. By the way, when mm. he said it. the cunning plan mm. is. The definition of madness. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Returning, expecting a different outcome. And he was relying on 25 Labour MPs who so, you know, so pissed off by it all. Let's just get it through. Mm. But I think a no-confidence vote would scupper that mm. gambit. Um, so this was this guy's view. And if that is the truth, is that what Sir Simon Lister and his bunch of former vote leave bods who are going to be sitting in number 10, is that the best they can do? Then he's in trouble. Mm. Well, I think one thing that we can all agree on is that he's in trouble. 
But unfortunately, so are the rest of us. Um, but he is in trouble, that's for sure. I mean, he got what he wanted. And um, I thought, what, who was was it also in Ian Dunn's piece where he said, well, he could have got to this point anyway, anyway, yeah. if he had just supported Remain. And he would have been in this point anyway, if his yeah. gamble on leave yeah. losing big time. Yeah, the famous text message to David Cameron. He says, "Look, I, I'm going to be, I, I'm going to be, I'm going to be, I'm going to be trashed, and also, of course, we'll be able to keep our seat on the European Council." Mm-hmm. Um, yes, but it's poetic justice and a wonderful Greek tragedy that the guy who brought us here, not just from 2016, but from his days here as a Daily Telegraph mm. correspondent. The trajectory ends with this moment of mm. truth, um, and as there is a, you know, a pyrrhic loss, I hope will be the result of it. I can't remember if I've told my Boris Johnson story, my anecdote. We've all got one. We've all got one. So mine was as a what was I? I was twenty four, twenty five. It was my first job um, after university as. Um, a, a civil servant in the Department of Trade and Industry uh-huh. and I was a young fast streamer working on the review of the European Structural Funds the European Regional Funding um, and it was during the UK Presidency 2005? Two, no, 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 no God, no, no 1993 okay. 92, 93 right. and um, far younger than you <laughs> And it was, in fact, a British commissioner responsible for that portfolio, Bruce Millen. Yes. Hands up, who remembers Bruce Millen? Anyway, Bruce Millen was um, Bruce Millen was the commissioner responsible, and we went into a general affairs council back when he was in the Charlemagne building. Um, my boss was this incredibly interesting man. I don't know. I wonder if I hope he's still with us, but a guy called Richard Wells that why old Whitehall watchers will know. I mean, he he's a he was a character. Um, and he would send me as his, as the young, uh, fresh-faced um, civil servant I was. I would be sent up to the 14th floor of the Charlemagne, where they used to have a bar, and I used to have to buy him a whiskey and uh, a, a cigar, and I'd take it back down to the room where we were negotiating the structural funds, and he would sort of sit there and puff, and he would build alliances, and it was all very exciting for for a young civil servant. Mm-hmm. Anyway, we got to the point where we had a text almost ready to go. And it went to the General Affairs Council, um, and Bruce Millen was in the commission chair. It was actually the Danish presidency, so it was just after ours had finished. We'd done most of the work, and it was the Danes who were in charge. And um, it was a real all-nighter, and the Irish pulled an absolute blinder. Their, um, their foreign minister was Dick Spring, oh, no, Dick Spring, who was an incredibly talented operator. And he basically slammed his shoe on the table and said yet until they got more money and it it went into the late into the night Bruce Millen the 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 the, the Scottish Labour politician who was commissioner for regional policy was unable to broker a deal and Jacques Delors was brought in from the hospital on a stretcher he had terrible sciatica and Jacques Delors came in on a stretcher threw Bruce Millen out told him to go home God. all the rest of us were thrown out to the bar it was only ministers were left in the room. At about five o'clock in the morning, we had the white smoke and we had a deal, and the Irish had got a wonderful sweet deal. Anyway, the the the, the Boris bit of this story was that the min, the UK minister who was there was 
uh, Tim Sainsbury. So there's the connection with the with the Sainsbury um, dynasty. Mm. Tim Sainsbury was the junior minister at the DTI who was responsible for, for regional policy. And during the night, in the British Bureau de Passage, in the British room um, on the, on, in, in the Charlemagne, only one journalist was given access, and that was Boris Johnson. And Boris Johnson was brought into the room where we were busy plotting and planning and working out what we would do during the course of the negotiation. Sir John Kerr was the British permanent representative at the time. Sir John Kerr of, uh, now Lord Kerr, mm. of um, Lisbon Treaty fame and um, all-round solid yeah. hero of British European history. 60 a day man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Unbelievable <laughs> guy. So this was, really, this was in the days of proper smoke-filled rooms. And Lord Sainsbury, uh, so it wasn't, excuse me, it wasn't Lord Sainsbury, it was Tim Sainsbury. Tim Sainsbury threw everybody out of the room except Boris. And he sat there for, um, um, it must have been a good 20, 25 minutes, giving this one journalist, who the hell is this guy? And my boss at the time, who was in the grade seven, not, 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 not Richard, who was... So my boss at the time had been at college with him and he said, oh yeah, this guy, oh, this guy, yeah, I knew him at college. He's, he's, he's... I'll, I'll be careful the words I use, but wouldn't put, want to put them into anybody's mouth. But suffice it to say that I came away from that thinking, wow, that guy, what a wanker. <laughs> what an entitled piece of shit. And yeah, here we are. 25, 26 years later, he's Prime Minister. Yes. Wow. Well, we talked about Louis Napoleon earlier on. The beautiful epithet to uh, him was that uh, uh, there's only one thing worse than not getting what you want, and that's getting what you want. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, that's the one, the, the one satisfac- piece of satisfaction that we can take from all of this is that, yeah, you want it, you got it, you now own it. Yeah. And, and this is where, I, I think where we're getting to right now is the, the revolutionaries are now getting ever more paranoid and ruthless. Mm. I mean, the Derek sort of defenestration mm. was a prime example of that. Uh, I believe Femi is being sued by Richard Tice. Oh, uh, Carol Cadwallader is yes. suing, is being sued by Banks. And I, you know, I, there was some... The Snowflake Five is that The called. Snowflake Five. There's some, I mean, you know, you didn't hear it here first, but there is a, there's a, some rumour that Theresa May, in her last embittered sort of, you know, signature, is authorising the serious crime, uh, serious crime, whatever it's called, SFO. Office. Uh, to um, uh, to now take action against Aaron Banks. Oh, that would be great. Wouldn't it be? And, I, and in many respects, these are the sort of unknown unknowns that I think could make the next 100 days incredibly exciting. Um, because there's plenty of vested interests who are as opposed to Boris Johnson as there are mm. vested interests who are protecting Boris Johnson. Well, that's that. That's the thing, and that's why, <clears throat> and that's why I thought he would never get to this point. I always thought that there were enough people out there who were important enough and who couldn't stand the guy to make sure that he never got anywhere near the the, the point where he now is. And that's where we were a year ago. Mm. But now we're not. Now he's there. He was he was dead meat in the Tory circles. Yes, exactly, exactly. And when we thought, well, that was it. We're not going to hear from him again. That's, That's it. it. He's done. And then Farage turns up again. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it's also 
what we've got to understand is that, and we don't, and we crow against them, we can't stand all this, is that what we need to do is realise that politics is now entertainment. And the Trumps, um, as well as the Johnsons, and our you know, festoonery of uh, you know, pound shop fascists all over Europe right now, you know, recognise this. And they've understood that 24-7 news enable, entitles you, enables you to just tell stories and get away with it. And it's very, very interesting how that works and the dynamic. I mean, as far as the BBC is concerned, no doubt Tony Hall sat on for many years by the Tory establishment. You, Tony, after 20 years of saying the BBC is you know, a left-wing biased institution, you know, they're not going to sit down and forget about that. Um, and there was a reason why David Cameron put John Wettingdale in as culture secretary, which was put the frightness on the BBC, and that was successful. Hmm. And this is all part and parcel of the fact that these are buffoons, but they're ruthless. Hmm. And there's masses of money behind it, and there's an international organisation hmm. as well. Um, and so what's fascinating about this period of time is, do we see um, you know, a ruthless takeover operation right now? Mm. Where the propaganda is beautiful, mm. you know, I, I would have expected a, you know, a thousand dead cats to be putting on, be, mm. being put on tables to distract the public. Uh, it's good news for this scheme because August is silly season and people are away, so there's plenty of plotting and planning they can do there. And I think what people don't get is that these people do want no deal. This is mm. where I think the idea, well, maybe a bit of compromise, maybe a bit of lipstick on a pig, maybe it'd be fine. But the vassalage argument isn't just rhetoric. It is a defeat of a project. Mm. And these guys want American money into the UK economy on November the 1st. Mm. Mm. And... I don't think this is a situation where compromise mm. can work no, no, if they're ruthless enough. No, I think I think the point for compromise is gone, isn't it? So um, the people who are now driving the agenda, they, they are people who want the they want they embrace the catastrophe of no deal. They they they, they know what it is. But it's like saying in nineteen seventy nine, oh, Jeffrey Howe's first budget is a catastrophe. Mm. Oh, you know, the, the the steel industry is shedding jobs. All of a sudden, unemployment is going from what it was in May 1979, you know, one million to three million in the space of three years. This is shock therapy. Mm. These people are looking back to that time and say, and saying, you know, you turn if you want to. Mm. You know, the Brexiters are not for turning, mm. Mm. and they see this in their in their folk memory, yeah, as an image of how to hold fast tenacious and of course you would argue in 1979 to 82 of course that project was saved by the Falklands War a new nationalism was created because these guys have got the nationalism in their silver platter right now mm -hmm. so these are smart political operators they know that the old scientific economic you know we're not going to get any speeches from number 10 about burning injustices which mm. is a society economic narrative you're going to get speeches about identity mm. defiance mm. which is a different game
Mm. Make Britain great again. Dude. Dude, honestly. <laughs> what a what a rhetorician. What a what a the new the new Demosthenes. Well, he's, got a, he's got a bust of Pericles in his office. That's his. Uh... But he's played a great. You know, let's let's just not. You know, let's admire if it's at all possible. One, you know, that we we have been we have been condemned by two of the most remarkable political magicians um, for a long time in the form of Farage and Johnson. Everybody else has been laid waste. And as politics goes, we've got to learn from them. Mm-hmm. Um, and we can't condemn it. We've got to learn from it. And the best way of learning from it is to take the passion and emotion of their argument mm. and twist them on its head as, as the, um, the famous four American congresswomen have been mm. doing in mm. the States. Trouble is, we don't have narratives. I mean, Joe Swinson was passionate without being very passionful. I know. Yeah, I, 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 the I old stuff. honestly, I was, I was, I'm, I confess that I was a little disappointed that she won. Uh, I, I'm sure she's a wonderful person and uh, has all sorts of talents, but I just felt that she. I I I, vote, I I was able to vote surprisingly enough. I found that I still had a ballot because apparently I'm still a member of the Lib Dems because I haven't stopped paying them. I didn't realise. That's it. So anyway, fine. I got to vote. So I I, I voted for Ed Davey because I I thought that first you know firstly he I knew that he'd been an extremely good minister because um, I, I knew people who'd worked with him. And they had a, everybody had only good things to say about him. And and then the second reason was that um, he just comes across to me as being a slightly more passionate and authentic politician mm. and then there's a third reason which is that um, I wonder whether the goal of a Remain alliance will be a little bit tougher given Joe Swinton's relationship with the SNP um, anyway it's, it, yeah. we are where we are so. and this is this point about political agility um, look, I mean, we've been through these crises, types of crises before. Hmm. I mean, the two elections in 74 presaged the possibility of a, a political shift. didn't happen. I tend to look to this crazy period of time between the end of the Lloyd George coalition and the emergence of Baldwin. So 1922-24, three elections took place during those three years, two years. And they embedded the fundamental shift that there was conservatism and then there was the opposition. Was it, was it liberalism or was it socialism? And that, and, and that blew it up. And then you had an old git like Ramsay MacDonald as the Prime Minister brought down in two seconds by the Zenobian letter. And you got those changes, 1886, with the Liberal Unionists splitting from Gladstone and obviously the Cornwalls. And, you know, this is often done and we're often, I'm afraid, in Britain, because history is not taught at all, apart from, you know, a Nazi period. Um, but at those times, they had clever political leaders who could swing with the zeitgeist. And the tragedy is, is that plainly in the Labour Party, we don't have that. The Conservative Party 
is believing it's shifting with the zeitgeist, and that's the tragedy if it becomes an English nationalist party. But that was a chronicle of a death foretold mm. after they were wiped out in Wales and Scotland in '97. Mm. Mm. Um, and the question really is it's a reactive scenario now. I think a little-known opportunity that could come out of this is a vote of no confidence, uh, 14-day period of time, that the uh, Tom Watson 140-150 Labour MPs could, at a time when shit's happened, put together a national government. I mean, that was the 1931 solution. Uh, people poo-poo it because we're all stuck in the paradigm of two-party politics, mm. things like that. But it wouldn't take much of a storm, you know, explosion on Boris's watch mm. every day mm. from a personal scandal down to ministers resigning and chaos. After all, his first period as London mayor was not- notorious by resignations and mm. chaos. So I, I just, you know, I wouldn't bet any money on it, but yeah, it's it's just not talked about yet. Well, I mean, it, I I see stories, I see people talk about it on on in, on Twitter and in columns and, and stories. I I think I've I, I don't allow I, I don't allow myself the luxury of hope. I I feel <laughs> that I I feel that if I were to put my faith in people like Amber Rudd you know um, or uh, Matt Hancock yeah to do the right thing for the country um, I would be on a hiding to nothing because they're not going to Um, yeah that's right and my sense is that there are not going to be that many people who could change things who will put country before party they'd rather say no no we're going to we're going to be movers and shakers from the inside. We're going to try and keep this this man on the straight and narrow, and that's how we're going to do it. Yeah, I mean, it's a rational theory. Mm. But if you think we're in Act 3, Scene 3 of this particular tragedy, and there's going to be blood and dead bodies at the end of it, uh, and, and I was trying to speak to people, particularly businesses, as I said earlier on, you know, look, this is not linear, this is not binary, this is going to move in strange and weird ways. We're all in Act 2, Scene 2? Two, no, I think we're in the final act now. What do you do? Oh, I do, I do. I mean, the tension, the weird thing, and your listeners will be in Britain as we're speaking in Brussels. You know, if you're talking about this, there's a palpable tension in the country. Hmm. It's, it's an odd one. You know, people do talk about it, kind of under their breath, as if something. Uh, you know, what the hell's going on? Mm. Um, and that tension is really building up. Mm. It's quite palpable. Well, I mean, <clears throat> I had here are the list of things that I had to talk to you about. Today. I was going. We haven't done a podcast since the European elections. Yeah. Oh my God, the top jobs, yeah, EU top jobs. I thought we should talk about that. I've got lots to say about that. Never mind the whole stuff going on in the UK. Um, I've got here under subsection Tory leader bullet point. Well, fuck. <laughs> yes, and we've covered a lot of that. We've done. We've basically spent forty-five minutes saying, well, "Fuck." Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I, 
we're already well into this podcast. I, I, I think that we don't really have time to sit and talk about the um, EU top jobs. Um, and I think I might save that for the next podcast. Well, the interesting thing about um, that, if I may just yeah. step in, is that I was listening today to a number of people talking. And of course, the tragedy of the Spitzen candidate story was that party politics mm. intervened. Mm. National party politics. National party politics. Mm. And um, and the tragedy of, as a former you know, employee of the European People's Party, mm. it was striking that the opportunities to avoid Ursula von der Leyen, and there was Franz Timmermans, of course, not to mention Alexander Stubb earlier on in the debate. They oh, see- if only they'd chosen I know. Stubb. I mean, if only they'd chosen Stubb. I mean, what a difference that would have made. You know, they never miss an opportunity to miss an opportunity. I mean, it's incredible, really. There was a guy ten years ago who was a great, you know, a great guy. He was a Dutch transport minister who was an MEP. His name was Camille Erlings. And they just, he was 35 years of age, he was a very good-looking man, very intelligent. And there was him... Or there was a lumpen French Alsatian farmer called Joseph Dull. And they chose Joseph Dull. Mm. And it's odd, this lowest common denominator rubbish, yeah. which sort of does defeat the object of trying to inspire the Europeans. And that, the project. That, that's the problem with the whole of the EU top jobs formula, the way in which it's done. Mm. I mean, I've got a lot to say about this. And I, I mean, just as a sort of little teaser, I mean, I. I, I was quite critical on Twitter and I mean I, this is where I have to be a little bit more careful because now I'm now talking about my future bosses and it all yeah. gets a little bit more close to home and, and it's a bit more difficult to juggle the personal and, and, and professional but honestly as a, as a European Federalist and it will come as no surprise to those listening to hear that oh, I'm a European Federalist wow. as a, a European Federalist I was not I was not a happy bunny mm. when these jobs were announced and when the council decision was taken and I've done a lot of thinking about it too I think that um, I don't know if it is the death of the Spitzenkandidat process. I mean, a sort of von der Leyen, in order to win the support of Parliament, did make all sorts of promises, but they're not really in her gift. That's mm. the problem. And as I've reflected upon this, I've become more and more to the to, to, to the understanding that something very significant happened happened with Lisbon, and it was it was something that wasn't so talked about at the time. It wasn't something that was so con- we, we, we were so conscious of. And it was the move away from a parliamentary system where the executive was the commission or is the commission and, and where that executive is beholden to the legislature, i.e. the parliament. We moved away from that towards, by making the European Council, instead of this head of state type body that sits above the entire structure of the EU, it's now an institution in its own right. And the president of the European Council has an institutional role under the treaties. And this is very significant because what it does is it moves us away from a parliamentary system to a more presidential system where um, actually, you know, it's like in France where, you know, we all know who the president of France is. Do we we remember who the prime minister of France is? Well, no, because they're really just the, the prime minister of the president. Whereas, you know, now when we look at the EU top jobs... We look at the institutional ballet that goes on in, in the EU. Really, the European Council is the one that sets the agenda, is the one that chooses the jobs. It's, it, it, the European Council can't be outvoted, it can't be outmaneuvered. Everything else is subservient and subordinate to the European Council ultimately. 
So we have a very presidential system where the European Council is the president. Not the president of the council, that's just the chairperson, but the council taken in toto is the is effectively what runs the European Union. And we don't get a vote on them. I mean, we get a vote on our heads of government usually, but we don't get a vote on the European Council and the direction it takes. So for me as a European Federalist, this was quite a sort of... I mean, you know, many of the people listening to this will no doubt think, well, hello, <laughs> wake up. But I, I think this this was something that was really rammed home to me by the developments of um, of, of June and July and, and, and where we are now in terms of the appointment of EU top jobs. And I, I find that um, a concern. I find that tough as, 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 as somebody who believes in... European governance and wants European governance to be more accountable to the people and I've, I've always preached European democracy and said no we are democratic mm. you know what, when they tell you that we're not democratic they're lying to you we are democratic well I yeah but boy we could do with some improvements I mean I'm saying that on a day when the British government was handed to somebody with you know all of the flaws that we've been busy talking about mm. on the basis of a vote of a tiny, tiny, tiny electorate. So I'm not making any comparisons here to the UK system, which I think is in deeply flawed. But I mean, we are ultimately a, a podcast about Europe. So I, 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 I might talk about that a bit more with my next guest, actually, who um, I will be recording with tomorrow. Right, we won't put it out for a couple of weeks. He's right. um, um, Jason Knoll, um, an American high school teacher um, and um, a friend of Europe and a guy that is involved in American local politics and I think it's going to be a really interesting discussion yeah fascinating um, and I, I'm really keen to hear what he's got to say about you know, from his perspective on, on what's been happening in the EU so we might talk a bit more about that then but yeah. I wanted to get that off my chest you've got to get it out of your chest yeah I mean the, the thing is the liberal democratic international world order the you know, Europe is now the champion of, you know, needs its vision. It's got, it's got everything it needs. It need, you know, it's got a, it's got a, a prodigal son in the form of the United Kingdom. Um, it's got enemies around, you know, Europe is united by the ring of fire that surrounds it. And it's got people who want to crush it to death mm. in the wicked Bond villains of Trump and Putin. Mm. And yet, <clears throat> this is the moment for a Teddy Roosevelt figure to appear. And whilst I understand what you're saying about democracy and federalism, I'm of a different view where mm. I think, you know, this is the moment for a national, you know, of course, that would have been Macron, mm. to try and instill some kind of um, momentum in the project. And I think the tragedy is, is that the European Union, as an economic, technocratic, um, product and model um, doesn't succeed in communicating the desperation of the tricky and difficult times mm. Mm. that we're in. And I, I, I'm sad about that. And I think it boils down to the story that we started off is that the language of Europe and the language of those who wish to preserve that order and the campaigning methods has to respond to these to, to this revolutionary nationalism hmm. that is 
hugely impressive in the way that it garners its votes. Mm. Um, and and so far so bad mm. in that respect. I mean, it rather reminds me of the story of Evelyn Waugh. In 1942, he was having lunch at the Earl of Glasgow and he was surrounded by some rather drunken sappers. And the Earl of Glasgow was saying, look out there, I've got this tree in my garden and I want rid of it. The sappers said, we can do that, we can just blow it up. We've got all the, uh, all the ammo here, we'll just blow it up and it'll drop on a sixpence. And so all they went after a very, very lovely lunch to the garden, sappers got around, blew it up and the whole thing was devastated. A crater was left 20 foot deep. All of, all of the Earl of Glasgow's orchards were ruined. He was so desperate he ran back into his beautiful house where all the windows had been destroyed. <laughs> and then, in desperation, he, <coughs> he ran up to the loo. And in tears, he pulled the loo handle and the ceiling fell down on his head. <laughs> this was a perfect motif for Brexit and the fact that hope and good intentions don't work and we've just got to be smarter than the next guy and really blow it up on a sixpence preferably it's a it's a tree with Nigel Farage <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah yeah the, I like the drunk sappers making promises that they couldn't deliver That's I like right. that look should we do a live week <clears throat> it's it's, a, it's it's something that we do is it something you do it's something we do, and we've got two. I've got two candidates. Yeah. Uh, there are many more, but these are the two that I thought of while I was sitting. One here. of them will be a kipper. So one of them's the kipper. Do we want to talk about? I mean, you know, we've all we've been, and we know that it, yeah, it was a lie. The, the but it's brilliant. It's brilliant because, as I think, was it Matthew Dancona said, it really didn't matter. It. This is the. I mean, I'm sure Steve Bannon. <coughs> and his wicked high priests of propaganda have sat down with what were 15 years ago the ugly ducklings of the, of the, of the Eurosceptic movement who would be sort of spitting and spluttering about sovereignty. And he, he says, you ugly ducklings, I can now I can create white swans for you. Just lie. Mm. Evoke. And the Kipper story is just like all of you. I mean, we've just got to learn from how clever it is. So let's just remind people what the Kipper story yeah, is. Yeah. So the Kipper story is at um, a speech, Boris Johnson, always in search of the, of, of the gotcha photo moment, picks up a Kipper wrapped inside a plastic bag. He says, you know what Brussels bureaucrats are doing now? This came from the Isle of Man this kipper and the law European law says it cannot be imported into the United Kingdom unless it has an ice pillow underneath it for health and safety reasons and everybody was so woeful and gnashing teeth and tearing hair about the perfidy of the Brussels bureaucrat whereupon a very modest lady at the European Commission the following day said no that is uh, not a EU law that is in fact a UK law and also the Isle of Man isn't in the EU anyway. But, you know, 
Were the smart commentators and journalists and the Sunday Times investigation squad over this? Nah. But the, by the time the truth has got its trousers on, the lie is twice around the world. Mm. Well, that, I mean, that's, that's the obvious lie of the week, but um, it, not so much a lie as a piece of classic cakeism, which, after all, is the raison d'etre for this podcast. Jeremy Hunt, um, failed leadership candidate Jeremy Hunt, currently Foreign Secretary, um, who has spent the last month monstering Brussels, saying how he'd be happy to lead us out um, with no deal, should that should Brussels not heavy hearted of the 350 yeah. kidder minister jobs that would go yeah um, speaking as an entrepreneur <laughs> yes um, Jeremy Hunt who compared the EU to uh, Soviet gulag in terms of not letting its people go um, Jeremy Hunt now uh, is, is pushing for a European led naval task force to protect British and the European shipping in the Gulf the Persian Gulf um now, this particularly riled me because, of course, it's something that's quite close to me professionally. I mean, I work in the bit of the EU that does naval task forces. And, and um, the, 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 fir- the, the EU does have history on this. We, 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 we did deploy a naval task force to the Indian Ocean and, and, and the Red Sea to protect shipping from Somali pirates. And it was um, a British-led naval operation and it was very successful. From but, indeed, but um, but um, but the leadership of that particular operation has passed to Spain, mm. given Brexit and all that. Well, now Jeremy Hunt wants to have a European-led naval task force and cooperate with other European countries on, uh, but not a European army. So it's it's so as I understand it, and I, I'm too cross to, to to look into the details of what he's talking about. But what he's talking about is some kind of ad hoc. Um, international cooperation between various European countries. He's not talking about a CSTP mission, but of course the entire point of the com- of the EU's common security and defence policy is that you have organisation in place, you have infrastructure in place, you have systems so that you can set this up quickly and get it on, get it, get it going. Uh, this is exactly this exactly illustrates the added value of EU membership for British foreign policy. And for this person to come and start talking about an EU-led task force or a European-led naval task force in the same you know, breath as talking about Soviet gulags, and I mean, it really sticks in the, well, in the craw. It but really never does. forget this was a Keystone Cops conclusion of an absolute uh, cock-up foreign yeah. policy. As Bolton says, <coughs> arrest that vessel in Gibraltar, whereas the Spanish government says, no, we won't. Mm. And then set up the Brits to mm. not protect the mm. uh, marine uh, merchant uh, vessels. And then the beautiful thing, which is why this lie comes out, mm. is that our closest special relationship ally, having put us in the shit, said, hey, you're on your own, pal. Yeah. yeah. Oh, let's run off to the Europeans then again. Yeah. Amazing. No, but you couldn't ask for a better illustration of exactly why we need the EU. Yes. You couldn't ask for a better one. But, you know, I already had people uh, pushing back to me on Twitter saying, uh, you need to wake up and smell the coffee. In the real world, the Europeans need our intelligence. You'd be idiots not to cooperate with us. They, you know, it's, it's rank cakeism, and it just does not, power, it's just not penetrate the thick skulls of these people. But there's a reason why 
EU membership was a good thing for British foreign policy and why we are already suffering as a result yeah. of all the bridges that we've burned. It's not over yet. It's not over yet, but I mean, you know, we're not... We're not but reputationally, this, it's not great. Reputationally, I think we, we are through the looking... I mean, it, it, we are... We're not coming back from this. We can cancel Brexit tomorrow and British influence, of which you are a great advocate and a defender and a great patriot. British influence is already in, in the... Down the in toilet. The, toilet. the one thing I would say about that is that whereas in human relations, first impressions are rarely changed, it's odd how in international relations it doesn't take much to, to, to change the perception of the country. After all, it was, you know, the French were in declinism mm. only five, six years ago. Mm. It, it, you know, it is superficial what I'm saying. A new leader does change the narrative. Mm. But a new leader with clear objectives, uh, you know, can shift the mood that a country has. And I, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't cancel doom. We'd be up and down like the Assyrian Empire, the United Kingdom, and we shall see where we, we shall see where the next hundred days takes us. But you're right, reputation we've been in, in deep doo doo. Well, um, this brings me to one of my favourite poems by Bertolt Brecht, um, which I'm gonna, now going to read in German. Wow. Alles wandelt sich, neu beginnen kannst du mit dem letzten Atemzug. Aber was geschehen ist geschehen und das Wasser, das du in den Wein gossest, kannst du nicht mehr herausschütten. Was geschehen ist geschehen, das Wasser, das du in den Wein gossest, kannst du nicht mehr herausschütten. Aber alles wandelt sich. Neu beginnen kannst du mit dem letzten Atemzug. So this means everything changes, you can start afresh with every new breath that you take. But what's happened has happened, and the, wi the water that you pour into the wine can't be taken back out. What's happened has happened, the water that you've poured into the wine you can't take back out. But everything changes, and you can begin again with every last breath. And what I love about this is that it says, you know what, actions have consequences. You can't disown what you've done. What the British have done with Brexit so far you can't undo that. Mm -hmm. There's no going back to May 2016. We are where we are. But, you know, we can, we can come out of this. We can do something else with this. Mm. We can go somewhere else. We don't, this doesn't have to define us forever. We can't go back to where we were, but we can go somewhere else. Yeah. And everything changes and everything moves on and there are other alliances to create. Mm. And history changes quickly. But yeah, this would require epic... Periclean political leadership. No, which, only, which we're not going to have for, <laughs> for a few weeks. We're still now. searching. Yeah. We've got a few weeks where we're not going to get that. Yeah. Then may, may come yet. Right, Peter, thank you so much. Pleasure. And thank, thank you, you very much for inviting me again. The cat sitting over there in the corner that has been very quiet. Thank you very, very much indeed. It's, it, as before, it's been fantastic um, fun talking to you. Great pleasure. I, I hope some of that um, communicates itself to the. To the um, to the audience um, out there listening in podcast land. Um, and I wish you a great summer holiday. Thank I you. can't wait for mine. It starts at the end of the week. Um, and that is it. Thanks very much, Chris. Thanks very much for listening. And um, put the heavy hat on. We're going up the wrong way. We're going to have to stop.
secret wars They can't expose them all We're going up the wrong way We're going to have to stop A scenic song, a natural loss 